Let's go with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2. In 12 through 39 this morning. So we are slowly making, well, I guess rather quickly making our way through the book of Acts. <laughs> I just want to take a few moments to reflect on last Sunday. This awesome, encouraging, thankful, uh, just in kind of the culmination of our process of um, choosing and adding a third elder by, um, in fact, elder body voted, it's encouraged by um, the fact that we voted him in at 100%, thankful for the unity of the body there and what that represents, uh, all the many facets of that, I was thankful for last week to get to pray together over Greg, um, and on that note, if you were not able to hear uh, while Rusty was praying, I apologize. We, I thought we should have put a mic on him, but uh, anyways, it happened, but apologize for that. Um, if you could not hear while Rusty was praying at the end, but uh, still a wonderful day, wonderful opportunity to go eat and uh, fellowship together uh, around some delicious food celebrating uh, just a third, you know, the two things that come to my mind when I think about what we're celebrating, I think, of a third elder to share the burden of eldership, uh, and I think of um, a third heart and mind and set of eyes to watch over the flock. Um, so I'm thankful for that. So with that said, let's jump into the book of Acts, chapter I will, starting in verse 12, I will read it here in just a few moments as we make our way through this passage. But I want to start with this. Given the passage that we are getting ready to read, I thought it pertinent to make a few comments about preaching uh, and sermons. Uh, just to make a few observations. In many churches today, Everything but preaching has become paramount. Everything but preaching has become the focal point uh, in many churches, cross denominations. That what's become paramount is all kinds of programs and marketing and other various philosophies of ministry. You've got to have this program for our kids, got to have other people my age, got to have this particular mid level conviction. But in the scriptures, there's got to have music that moves me. But in the scriptures, there's a priority of preaching. There's a priority of the proclaimed word of God amidst a local body. I don't know if you did renovate us this week. That's and if you don't know what that is, that's our uh, release on Thursdays, like questions. That basically, I just I just pull up my sermon after I'm done and write questions and kind of walk you all the way through the sermon and helping to hopefully water the, the soil of your heart before coming in here. But I asked you to go through the book of Acts and count how many sermons there were in the book of Acts. I count 19. 19 sermons in the book of Acts. We're talking about the birth of the church and what is being recorded during the birth of the church. The proclaimed Word of God, the preaching of God's Word, is 
largely what's being recorded during this very important time. I want you to understand this. I think part of what's being implied in this journey in the, in the early parts of the church is that where the preaching is, the church will go. Where the preaching is, the church will go. That's where it's headed. So if you want to tell, you can actually tell a lot about a church by its preaching. If the preaching is soft on sin, then the church will be soft on sin. If preaching is trumpeting the gospel, then the church will trumpet the gospel. The list goes on. It may take time, but the church will get there. Results don't tend to happen overnight. But where the preaching is, the church will go. You know, as you study church history, preaching, I think, has held rightly this central place in the life of the true church throughout the ages. I love that you see, like, in the Reformation, which is really, think about, like, the revival of faith. Like, when faith is revived, it was initiated largely through the revival of preaching. The reviving of preaching by men like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox. These guys who, who vow, who saw the importance of the proclaimed Word of God, the preaching of God's Word. The weakness of the contemporary church, particularly in the United States, is largely due to a decline of powerful biblical preaching. We also need to be careful that sometimes... Like that we don't take advantage of powerful biblical preaching. But that's a weakness in the church today. Preaching today isn't what grows churches. At least, you know what I'm saying. I, by and large, you look at, I mean, there are exceptions to that, certainly. John MacArthur, John Piper, I mean, he's, a, lot of, a lot of these churches have been built around good, solid biblical preaching, and among other things, but particularly that. But in a contemporary sense, this preaching is not what grows churches. It's marketing, it's kids' programs, it's social issues, and self-help sermons, if that's what you call them. But even for us, our weakness, I think, and a danger for us, is do we understand and realize the importance of good, powerful, biblical preaching? Listen, the early, let's, let's call it this, the early apostolic and model of preaching. The early apostolic model of preaching contained a couple key things. The first one's this. It contained truth of the gospel. There was truth of the gospel. And second, doctrine. It had doctrine. And, it, and then the characteristic of it is it was very logical. So they had gospel, doctrine, and it was very logical. It was not a journey first and foremost of emotions. Or of self-help. You can do this or you should do that. Truth of the gospel and doctrine, it was logical. Let me ask you this question. If the preaching of the word is paramount, if it's so important, as we see here in the early church. Let me ask you these couple of basic questions. How did you prepare 
to hear the teaching of God's Word this morning? How did you spend this week preparing for this moment right now? Let me ask you this question. What will you do with it tomorrow? Parents, what will you do with it concerning your kids today? So here's what we're going to do. Today we're going to journey through the first sermon of the Church of Jesus Christ. The first sermon. Let's begin in verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Very quickly, a few basic comments here. First you see Peter refutes the claim of drunkenness on what's just happened, what we talked about last week. Peter doesn't do anything fancy here, and honestly, he doesn't linger much at all. He's just, this is what's going on, that can't be so, let's move on. But I want you to notice this. I want you to notice. Peter had just witnessed Jesus crucified by the same people and, and he's getting ready to stand up. It says, he, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. I mean, think about just what's happening in this picture. Fifty, sixty days earlier, maybe not these people particularly, although I'm sure some of them were present. The people that put this same Jesus on the cross, the same one that he was too afraid to be associated with while he was on the cross. And now, in front of thousands of people, he stands up and lifts up his voice. With great confidence, he stands on the truth. And to use a metaphor, he puts a stake in the ground and confidently moves forward. Just again, just a real side note of, of application here. Many of us struggle because the stakes we have in the ground are just either not the right stakes or we're standing on the wrong thing. I don't want to put up Peter as a model of how, like, uh, uh, of perfectly how to live, but this is certainly something worthy to note. He stands in front of these people who put Jesus on the cross. Listen, oftentimes the stakes that we stand on, the truth that we stand on, are born out of idolatry instead of the word, fear of man, idealism, comfort, the list goes on and on and on. But here what we see working in front of our eyes is a, is a miracle in Peter's heart. Again, think about who this is and what, God had, what Peter rather had just done while Jesus was on the cross. The Spirit is working a miracle in Peter's lives right before our eyes. Let's move on, verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. 
even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here's what Peter does. Peter explains what is happening, what just happened, the, the spirit work, and what just happened. He's explaining it. He says it's connected to Joel. He's saying Joel, the prophet Joel, helps us understand this. Very quickly here, the last days refer to Christ coming to set up his kingdom, and so with his first coming, this begins. The setting up of Christ's kingdom begins at his first coming. These last days, if you will, now have lasted 2,000 years. So they are witnessing the first part of Joel's prophecy. The Spirit is being poured out on all to proclaim the gospel. The idea of prophecy here, I think, is largely the idea of Spirit-empowered ministry. Anyways, the first part of Joel's prophecy. The second part, though, I think is referring to something in the future. He's referring to the coming judgment day of the Lord. So I don't think these signs here, this in 1920 and 21, particularly these to the moon, to blood, and although, I mean, there's some pastors that think that that's you know, going to happen like tomorrow and the next day, and then they keep changing their mind. But this stuff hasn't happened yet. So we're in this in-between point, and he's saying that this is connected to Joel. Peter says, though, here at the very end, he says this. There is salvation for those who turn to the Savior. Right? I mean, think, again, think about the context. What just happened 50 days prior to this, and Peter is saying... There is salvation for those who call upon the name of the Lord. The guy that was just crucified, calling upon his name will save you. Let's read on, verse 22. Listen to Peter. Again, think of the context. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. The first thing I'd like for you to see this morning is know for certain the righteous life of Christ attested to by God. Know for certain. That's what Peter is saying. Know this. You indeed do know this. Simply say the same thing to us. Know this. Know this life of Christ. That it was attested to by God. Listen, the mighty manifestations of God's power were designed to get people's attention and point them to the truth. It was designed to to say, hey, you people, look at Jesus. He's my son. He's my savior. He's the savior of the world. He has come. I have sent him. 
God did these miracles, Peter says, through Jesus. It was indeed Him. See, the Creator of the universe harnessing the forces of nature to direct His children to the truth of His Son. What a marvelous reality. Listen, God directed demons into pigs. He healed people of wretched diseases. He told the storm and the sea where to start and where to stop and when to calm down. He told hearts to beat again and lungs to breathe. This is God. And He says these things. And Peter is saying, and God did them in your midst. You know these things. You saw this. But here's a point that's particularly amazing. Even though the facts of Jesus were undeniable, Peter says this in verse 23, this Jesus, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The second thing that we should know for certain is this, that Christ died for you and died at your hands. He died at my hands. A couple important things to note here. God didn't just look into the future, know Israel's response to Jesus, and then react and plan accordingly. That's not how God did this. Instead, Jesus was delivered to death according to God's eternal, definite plan. It was God's plan, Peter says, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But at the same time, this does not absolve those who put him to death of their guilt. This doesn't acquit them. This doesn't remove their guilt. He says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Again, there's, there's a whole lot we can talk about here in God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility and such a we don't have time for, but listen to this. God used evil men to accomplish His will and yet never violated their will or removed their culpability. He never removed their responsibility. He used evil men to accomplish His plan, but they were still responsible for what they did. Peter says this was all according to the foreknowledge of God and yet... The plan, rather, according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. And yet, you're responsible for His crucifixion. But here's kind of the main point that we need to see. So we're understanding, like, narratives. There's, there's like, what's happening visibly, like we can see and we can hear. And then there's, like, a, a theme, or there are themes and stories being told are, are pointing to something grander, maybe a bigger picture. So at that, I want to say this. The main point, I think, at this point in the text is that the rejection of Jesus was the darkest moment in Israel's history. 
Right? Israel went through all of these you know, good days and bad days and exile and discipline and losing entire generations because of sin. And yet, the darkest moment for Israel was the rejection of Jesus. So, I mean, according to the definite plan of God, you crucified him. What's he saying? Like, all of this plan, all of this big story comes down to this. You rejected that, that story, that plan, God's workings through and up to his son Jesus. See, it's one thing to reject something that is bad. It's another thing to reject something that is pretty good. But when someone lays down their life for you, that is a dark moment when you reject that. That's what Peter is saying. He would say the same thing to us. The times that we reject the one who laid his life down for us. Or maybe you're in this room and rejecting ultimately in a sense that I don't need forgiveness for my sins or, or maybe you do and it's just a kind of a mental assent to that and, but it's a dark moment when we reject the life of someone who laid down their lives for us I don't want you to miss something here don't miss God's grace don't miss God's grace right here in the middle of this very indicting Sentence. Despite Israel's darkest moment in history, the rejection of Jesus, what is being offered to Israel right now? Salvation. Rescue. Right in the middle of it. Salvation is offered to them. Listen, so many times we, those who are saved, will walk around as Christ's salvation is being offered to us in practical means, we oftentimes simply reject it. So think about salvation, not just in a justification sense, but in a sanctification sense, right? That we reject it as well. Because of pride, we reject God's offer of grace through those in authority over us. Because of self-righteousness, we reject God's offer of grace in community growth. Oh, these people just don't understand me. We just don't see eye to eye. Listen, we can justify these things all day long. We can convince ourselves of these things all day long. But the reality is, is we're missing out on God's grace right now in the middle of life. Right here in the middle of their darkest moments. He says, but there is salvation through the Lord. What a testimony to God's grace. Peter confronts their horrid sin and offers them grace. The most horrific thing that they had ever done, right? The most horrific thing ever, rejecting Jesus. Call on his name and you will be saved. What does that mean for us? What kind of sins do you have that are too much to talk about? Call on the name of the Lord 
and you will be saved. Don't miss the grace. This is our desire every Sunday, your pastor's desires. Let the scriptures and the spirit confront our horrid sin and offer grace. Listen, I think an implication we can draw from this is this. Showing grace is not going light on sin. As a parent, did you hear that? Showing grace is not going light on sin. Showing grace is offering hope only in the gospel. Church member to each other. See, this is, what, see, this is what many of us have seen. If you've grown up in the church, you, you see people that are definitely not light on sin, except for their own, right? And they go after it, but do they ever offer the hope of the gospel? Because that's grace. It's also grace to confront the sin, but it's not grace to confront the sin and not offer the gospel. It's a package deal. Peter confronts the sin. I mean, right? They could easily throw him up on a cross right now. No one would stop him. It would happen. It would just... The, and he says, you sinned. This was your darkest moment. And yet, here's grace. Let me ask you that in, in the sense of showing grace and Offering hope and the gospel and not going light on sin. Are you, let me ask you this, you personally in your own life, are you daily confronted with your sin and daily walking it back to the gospel? And I do mean daily. I don't mean like just in general, the lie. I mean like daily. Walking in repentance and faith. Walking it back to the gospel. Reminding yourself of grace. If not, you may not have the Spirit. I know that's a, a hard thing to hear. It's certainly a hard thing to say. But that's what the Spirit does. That's what's, what just happened. Peter is now indwelt by the Spirit. And what is he doing? He's confronting those who are enemies of God and offering them grace. You and I have this proclivity, even though we're redeemed, to walk as enemies of God. Confront it. And offer it grace. Same thing would be true in your children. If you're a parent or to your brothers and sisters. Let me, let me, let me encourage you for a moment here too. If, if you struggle like, with the war of confronting sin and returning it to the gospel to slay that sin. If you, if you do that and you're like, Oh, it's just like it's just tiresome and it's wearing on me. And I, I hate this sin. I was talking to someone recently. I was like, I just, I see the ugliness of this in my life and I hate it. I can't stand it. I just want to get, I just want to be done with it. You know, I said to this person, be thankful. Be thankful. Why? Because the Spirit's at work in your heart. My gosh. Be thankful. Keep moving forward. Persevere. Depend harder. That's the walk of faith. The walk of faith is not being perfect. Jesus was perfect. Our walk of faith is repentance, confession, dependence, humility, trusting in His work. 
all that, like doing things right and living rightly in holiness, all that flows out of that. He says this, you crucified him. But by grace, God planned it so that he could rescue you with the grace of the gospel. By grace, he planned this. Let's move on, verse 24. God raised him up. This man, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter now finished quoting from David, says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Whoa! So much, so much here. Know for certain that the Christ was resurrected. That's what he is telling them. Know for certain that the Christ is resurrected. As a matter of fact, he's saying, you should know this. You're all witnesses to this. You have no excuse. I love it. Let's love it. It's thinking of the, of the, the argument here, right? The, the homily that's, that's, that we're reading through. The, the, the sermon. The persuasive speech. That he's saying, you know this. You're witnesses. All right. Know for certain that Christ was resurrected. A couple comments here, very quickly. This was the central theme of apostolic preaching. And it was also the climax of redemptive history. This needs to be the theme of our preaching. I pray that it is. Strive for it to be. This resurrection of Christ, it does multiple things. It proves the deity of Jesus Christ. It establishes His messianic credentials. And it also is the guarantee of our own resurrection. See that phrase there at the beginning, God, He loosened the pangs of death. Ha. What, what? He loosened them how? By raising Jesus to life. He put an end to the agony of death for His Son. Loosened. Now, Peter quotes from a prophetic passage in Psalm 16, 8-11. And he basically says this, Brothers, now listen. David both died and was buried... In fact, his tomb is with us today as provable evidence that this 
passage in Psalm was not speaking about your patriarch David. The one whom you prize. It wasn't speaking about him. His tomb is here. This isn't talking about David. This is talking about the Messiah. This one you put on the cross. The one you crucified. It describes him. It describes Jesus indeed as he looked to the cross. Very briefly, what are some of the things that are brought out in this passage? First of all, I am always beholding the Lord in my presence. Jesus How is Jesus living this life? I am always beholding the Lord in my presence. I'm at His right hand, meaning I'm always protected. God is always protecting me. Think about that as the one who knew the cross was coming. I'm always protected. Huh. And He's about to be crucified. He says that even His flesh would dwell in hope. Says he was full of gladness. Wow. Listen, it was this Jesus that God raised up, Peter says. And of that, we are all witnesses. Let's move on, verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain That God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Gosh. Next. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Know for certain. Right? It's one thing for them to choose someone to be a leader in the church. It's, Peter says, God has done this, and you should know it for certain. So here, not only did he rise from the dead, but he also was exalted to the place of honor, glory, and power at the right hand of God. And God has done this. This is the glory of the Father. But now look what Peter does. Now he brings the argument full circle back to what? Back to the phenomena happening at Pentecost. Wow, so he takes them through a journey of the Old Testament, always pointing back to Jesus. Old Testament pointing back to Jesus. All the way back to now here's what's happening right now. He says, you all have just seen what has resulted from God's promise to send the Spirit to inaugurate this new age. All of that stuff was pointing to this. And then he quotes from Psalm 110. Again, the psalm cannot be referring to David since it was not David who ascended into heaven. 
Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. He is the one who ascended into heaven. And the proof was the outpouring of the Spirit that the crowd had just witnessed then, there, in the present. So here's what happens. Or here's what happened, has just happened. Peter just provided overwhelming evidence from Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and exaltation that He is indeed Israel's long-awaited Messiah. In Israel's darkest moment, let me show you from the Scriptures, let me show you from empirical evidence that He is the Messiah. And He says, this Jesus, whom God has attested as His Messiah, is the one whom you crucified. At this point, I want to ask you a question. I mean, this is, again, at the very root, the very foundations of the church. I think it's a very appropriate question for us to ask this. What does it mean to become a Christian? What does it mean to become a Christian? What does it mean to become a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Christ? That's what's happening here, right? Peter, this, we're witnessing the very beginning of go therefore make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Right here at the very beginning. This is what the church is being built upon. This is why we see so much unhealth and just disgusting realities in churches today is because they're not built on this foundation. What does it mean to become a Christian? Like really, what does it mean to become a Christian? The first sermon, the birth of the church, 3,000 people get saved. And now the church is going to be off to the races. What does it mean to become a Christian? I think Keller is helpful. He points out four things here. Four things. Mind, grace, heart, and life. I'm going to go through each one of those. First one, mind. What does it mean to become a Christian? Look at verse 36 with me. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain. I think what, what Peter does here in 36, 37, 38, and 39, he gives kind of a, a summary statement of what it means to become a Christian. And, and, and in a sense, he kind of recaps what he just preached. 36, 37, 38, 39. He says, let the house of Israel therefore know for certain. What is Peter doing? He's appealing to the mind. He says, that you would know. That you would know, not that you would feel, that you would know. And what's he do? He takes them to the Old Testament that those present would have believed as authoritative. These Jews would have believed that these scriptures are God's word. And he takes them there and he appeals to their mind. He doesn't just say, well, well you're just wrong. He doesn't just throw a meme at them. 
He appeals to their mind. He appeals to the scriptures. What's he do? He enters their worldview. He enters into their belief system. That's much for us to learn here in modern day apologetics and engaging in the gospel. I'm not going to spend time there, but there's much for us to learn here. He, he engages them where they're at. Listen, house of Israel, if you believe this, then you must believe this about Jesus. Otherwise, you don't really believe this back here. So Peter appeals to the mind, but he also appeals to the mind when he appeals to their eyewitness. We've seen this. You've seen this. What's he saying? He's saying, you're not being honest if you deny what you saw. So listen, to become a Christian, the mind must be changed. The mind must be changed. But also argue that as you are sanctified, the mind must be changed as well. You don't move on in sanctification unless the mind is being regularly changed. Listen, Christianity doesn't skip over the mind. Remember how Luke started here with Theophilus in Acts, but even at, in, in the book of Luke, in, the book of, in, in Acts, he says, by many proofs, right? What's he doing? He's appealing to the mind. In Luke 1, he says that you would know with certainty. You would know it. I think we have two implications, very quickly. If I was to ask you today, why should I believe in Christianity, what would you say? What would you say? Well, I just know it's true. Are you appealing to the mind? The mind's got to be changed. Number two, as you work, a second implication, as you work out your salvation, do you try to do a, a run around the mind? got to psych up my emotions. It's got to feel a certain way. I don't know if you realize this, but your emotions can drive your mind. You can want something so bad that you convince yourself that it's the right decision. Listen, oftentimes self-justification is nothing more than your emotions Patronizing your mind. But Christianity says this. You have to think. You have to use your mind. The mind is important, even vital. This is, this is what Peter is saying to them. Okay? I'm going to say the same thing to you. And this is, and we think about sharing the gospel. Something has happened in history, and you have to deal with it. That's what Peter's saying. Something has happened in history, and you have to deal with it. Listen, if someone doesn't believe that this happened in history, there's like really no, very little conversation to be had. I mean, you can have other conversations to get to that point, but it's got to get to that point. It's got to get to the point of something has happened in history, and your mind has to do something with it. So you either deny it, 
or you accept it. And if you accept it, then it means a lot. Listen, any step, let me give you this last warning, any step in your journey as a Christian that doesn't address the mind, I would at least say there is danger. Must engage the mind. Number two, grace. What does it mean to become a Christian? The mind. Number two, grace. Verse 36, reading on. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. That God has done this. Look at this verse. You need to know for certain what? That God has done this. That is grace. That God has done this. It wasn't something you could do. Listen, salvation indeed is never about what you do, but about what God has done. It's not about what you do or don't do. It's about what God has done. Our doing comes in a response to God's doing. God does the saving, and we respond in obedience. Let me say this at this point. If your life is not a response of obedience, then there is no work of God. I don't mean perfect obedience, right? Because the walk of faith is what? Well, repentance and faith, and, or repentance and humility, and confession, forgiveness, like, but if that's, so if that's not happening, then I think you should ask the question, well, is there actually a work of God? See, he says here, know for certain that God has done this. And Peter shows us how to understand the Old Testament. That's the second thing I want you to see underneath grace, is that he shows us how to understand the Old Testament. How? How do we understand the Old Testament? We do so Christocentrically. Because what's Peter doing? He's saying these passages are pointing to Christ. What is that? He's saying that these passages are, are grace. They're pointing to grace. The Apostle Saul in the Old Testament that everything pointed to Christ. We'll see this theme over and over and over again as we go through the book of Acts. They're helping us see how do we, how do we understand these passages, these codes, these stories, these narratives. They all point to Jesus. The apostles saw this. We should do likewise. Every theme, every character. Jesus is the true and better Adam. He passed the test of the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, in this case, is also the true and better David. That's what Peter's saying. He's the true and better patriarch whom many of you worship as though he's God. The Old Testament, therefore, was about grace. It was ultimately pointing to Jesus. Listen, the Bible is not primarily about you or even what you need to be doing. The apostles help us understand here that the Bible is primarily about what God has done and what God is doing. Therefore, the Bible is primarily about God and about His grace. Even the Old Testament. So what does it mean to become a Christian? 
It involves the mind. And it requires grace. Next, heart. Heart. Verse 37. (laughs) Listen to these words. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It says they were cut to the heart. Few things this means. First of all, this means that Christianity is not just something you can choose to do. I know, I know, that flies in the face of a lot of beliefs and church practices. They were cut to the heart. Christianity is not just something you can choose to do. It's not just a decision of the mind. It's not just saying a prayer or being baptized or walking an aisle. This cutting to the heart. It also means that you could have a mind that has affirmed Christianity, but if the heart has not been engaged, if it's not been cut then you are not a Christian. To be a Christian means to be cut to the heart. You want to know, like, so have I been cut to the heart? How do you respond to things like sin? How do you respond when preaching is being preached and sins being addressed? How does your heart respond when grace is being offered? in Christianity, someone said Christianity grabs a hold of you. Like it literally means, this idea of cut to the heart literally means to be stabbed or pierced. Remember what Peter said earlier? You put Jesus to death. You crucified him. Right? Now it's highly unlikely that many of these thousands that were listening were actually present at Jesus' death. And yet, he says what is true of them as well. You put him to death. You crucified him. What is he doing? He's confronting their sin and offering them the Savior. And it says they were cut to the heart. Here's, here's what I would say is like the essence of Christianity. It's when sin becomes personal and is no longer an abstraction. When sin becomes personal and it's no longer just a theory. It's no longer something disconnected from us that we have to deal with when it's inconvenient. Let me take you to Luke 22, starting verse 60. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Right? What's, he, what's he doing here? He's denying Christ, right? 
And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And what's Peter do? Or, you know, what's Peter do? He went out and wept bitterly. What's happening here? The idea here is that Peter was cut to the heart. Peter was pierced. What was Peter doing before this moment that, that Jesus is referring to here? He was trying to save his skin, right? He was trying to protect himself. Do you think that Peter knew what he was doing was wrong? Yup. Listen, he, he was a Jew. At the very least, thou shalt not give false witness, right? At the very least, he was lying and he knew it. So what do you think? There's just no way Peter did not feel a sense of guilt at this point. There's no way. Some kind of shame, some kind of guilt, some kind of what I'm doing is wrong. But just look at the picture. Peter feels some measure of guilt throughout this process, but then what happens? When Jesus looks at him, something changes. When Jesus looks at him, something changes. Something happened. And what's the result? He's cut to the heart. He goes out and whips or uh, weeps or weeps bitterly. He was cut to the heart. Listen, someone said, it's one thing to know you broke the rules. It's another thing to know you've broken his heart. Broken the heart of the one to whom you and I owe everything. Many of us live in this state of guilt, a little bit of shame, but it's nothing more than a realization that we did something wrong. And it's not personal. It's not, I have sinned against the one whom I owe everything. Listen, if God is just some big law keeper, one who's going to get me if I break a law and Jesus is the one who paid for my mess. You will experience shame. You'll be unhappy, but it will not change you. Here's what will happen. You'll simply learn how to hide your sin better and you'll learn how to justify it better. Like beating on your will to comply will make no ultimate difference. But when it becomes personal, when you realize, I haven't just broken a rule, but I have broken his heart, the one whom has given me everything, when that happens, life change happens. We've, seen, we've sang about this this morning. What kept him on the cross? It was his love for you and for me in spite of our sin. Listen, when it becomes personal, when our sin becomes personal, 
And what happens is grace comes inside and melts our hearts. It cuts us through the heart. It pierces our hearts. It begins to melt the cold, hard hearts. Listen, Peter confronted their sinfulness. That was grace. Peter offered them the gospel. That was grace. And what happens? It says they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And when their hearts melted, life changed. Look in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Do you hear that? What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Did you hear what they said at the very beginning? Sin was confronted, gospel offered, cut to the heart. So mind, grace, heart, What's the response? What must we do? What's pride say? This is what I do. This is, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to do that. I'm supposed to do that. What's, what's humility say? What's a heart cut say? What must I do? What must I do? Listen, what must we do? Humility says we are hopeless. We are helpless. Please tell us. Mind, grace, heart. Here's what life looks like when you're a Christian. Three things. You repent and receive forgiveness. That's what the life of a Christian looks like. Repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness. Two, you're baptized and you get a new community that you get to commit your life to. Number three, you receive power to live this life. The Holy Spirit. That's life. That means your life changes. You see, listen to me here, this last thought. When the mind is changed, grace is given, and your heart is melted. You walk a life of humble repentance and faith, committed to the people of God, and living in the power of the Spirit. Peter says, know for certain, this Jesus who died, was resurrected, and has ascended to the throne, you crucified Him. Call upon His name, and you will be saved. The same thing is true for us today. Let's pray. Fathers, we prepare to take communion this morning. I pray that 
you would. Melt our hearts. That communion would be a confrontation of our sin and an offering of the gospel every time we partake. It would be both an indictment on the reality of our brokenness and that it would bring greater clarity on the reality of the offering of the grace of the gospel. Every time. Father, I pray as I try to live for you, Father, that we would understand that our minds must be changed, our hearts must be caught. We must see and receive grace. And when that happens, life changes. Father, I pray that you would make these realities true in our lives, that you'd help us to believe these things. It would bring about great change in our lives, Father, for your glory, for our good. Father, it's in your son's most precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you all just to remain seated and come up as you're ready. I want to remind you a couple things. It's a time of confession and also a time of forgiveness. And Again, right, confronting sin, but then recognizing the hope of the gospel and the bread and the wine, grape juice, the body and the blood. There's important things like church unity that's involved here. Being unified with a group of people that's at stake here. There's a purity thing that's at stake here. Are you walking in repentance and faith? And if not, Paul even says we shouldn't partake because we'll drink judgment on ourselves. We'll eat and proclaim judgment on ourselves. It's a sense of dealing with things with God that should precede partaking. But I also want to encourage you with that, that that doesn't take, that may not need to take, rather, years and years. Like, confess it. Give it to God. And then walk in repentance and obedience. I just want to remind you of those few things as we partake.